The Arrow of Gold, A Story Between Two Notes, by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Second Note. The narrative of our man goes on for some six months more, from this, the last night of the carnival season, up to and beyond the season of roses. The tone of it is much less of exultation than might have been expected. Love, as is well known, having nothing to do with reasons, being insensible to forebodings and even blind to evidence, the surrender of those two beings to a precarious bliss has nothing very astonishing in itself, and its portrayal, as he attempts it, lacks dramatic interest. The sentimental interest could only have a fascination for readers themselves actually in love. The response of a reader depends on the mood of the moment, so much so that a book may seem extremely interesting when read late at night, but might appear merely a lot of vapid verbiage in the morning. My conviction is that the mood in which the continuation of his story would appear sympathetic is very rare. This consideration has induced me to suppress it, all but the actual facts which round up the previous events and satisfy such curiosity as might have been aroused by the foregoing narrative. It is to be remarked that this period is characterised more by a deep and joyous tenderness than by sheer passion. All fierceness of spirit seems to have burnt itself out in their preliminary hesitations and struggles against each other and themselves. Whether love in its entirety has, speaking generally, the same elementary meaning for women as for men is very doubtful. Civilization has been at work there. But the fact is that those two display in every phase of discovery and response an exact accord. Both show themselves amazingly ingenuous in the practice of sentiment. I believe that those who know women won't be surprised to hear me say that she was as new to love as he was. During their retreat in the region of the Maritime Alps, in a small house built of dry stones and embowered with roses, they appear all through to be less like released lovers than as companions who had found out each other's fitness in a specially intense way. Upon the whole, I think that there must be some truth in his insistence of there having always been something childlike in their relation. In the unreserved and instant sharing of all thoughts, all impressions, all sensations, we see the naiveness of a children's foolhardy adventure. This unreserved expressed for him the whole truth of the situation. With her it may have been different. It might have been assumed, yet nobody is altogether a comedian, and even comedians themselves have got to believe in the part they play. Of the two, she appears much the more assured and confident. But if in this she was a comedienne, then it was but a great achievement of her ineradicable honesty. Having once renounced her honourable scruples, she took good care that he should taste no flavour of misgiving in the cup. Being older, it was she who imparted its character to the situation. As to the man, if he had any superiority of his own, it was simply the superiority of him who loves with the greater self-surrender. This is what appears from the pages I have discreetly suppressed, partly out of regard for the pages themselves. In every 
even terrestrial mystery, there is, as it were, a sacred core. A sustained commentary on love is not fit for every eye. A universal experience is exactly the sort of thing which is most difficult to appraise justly in a particular instance. How this particular instance affected Rose, who was the only companion of the two hermits in their rose-embowered hut of stones, I regret not to be able to report. But I will venture to say that for reasons on which I need not enlarge, the girl could not have been very reassured by what she saw. It seems to me that her devotion could never be appeased, for the conviction must have been growing in her that, no matter what happened, Madame could never have any friends. It may be that Doña Rita had given her a glimpse of the unavoidable end, and that the girl's tarnished eyes masked a certain amount of apprehensive, helpless desolation. What, meantime, was becoming of the fortune of Henry Allegra is another curious question. We have been told that it was too big to be tied up in a sack and thrown into the sea. That part of it represented by the fabulous collections was still being protected by the police. But for the rest it may be assumed that its power and significance were lost to an interested world for something like six months. What is certain is that the late Henry Allegra's man of affairs found himself comparatively idle. The holiday must have done much good to his harassed brain. He had received a note from Doña Rita saying that she had gone into retreat and that she did not mean to send him her address, not being in the humour to be worried with letters on any subject whatever. It's enough for you, she wrote, to know that I am alive. Later, at irregular intervals, he received scraps of paper bearing the stamps of various post offices and containing the simple statement, I am still alive, signed with an enormous, flourished, exuberant R. I imagine Rose had to travel some distance by rail to post those messages. A thick veil of secrecy had been lowered between the world and the lovers, yet even this veil turned out not altogether impenetrable. He... It would be convenient to call him Monsieur Georges to the end, shared with Doña Rita her perfect detachment from all mundane affairs, but he had to make two short visits to Marseille. The first was prompted by his loyal affection for Dominic. He wanted to discover what had happened or was happening to Dominic, and to find out whether he could do something for that man. But Dominic was not the sort of person for whom one can do much. Monsieur Georges did not even see him. It looked uncommonly as if Dominic's heart were broken. Monsieur Georges remained concealed for twenty-four hours in the very house in which Madame Leonore had her café. He spent most of that time in conversing with Madame Leonore about Dominic. She was distressed, but her mind was made up. That bright-eyed, nonchalant and passionate woman was making arrangements to dispose of her café before departing to join Dominic. She would not say where. Having ascertained that his assistance was not required, Monsieur Georges, in his own words, managed to sneak out of the town without being seen by a single soul that mattered. The second occasion was very prosaic and shockingly incongruous with the super-mundane colouring of these days. He had neither the fortune of Henry Allegra nor a man of affairs of his own, but some rent had to be paid to somebody for the stone hut, and Rose could not go marketing in the tiny hamlet at the foot of the hill without a little money. 
There came a time when Monsieur Georges had to descend from the heights of his love in order, in his own words, to get a supply of cash. As he had disappeared very suddenly and completely for a time from the eyes of mankind, it was necessary that he should show himself and sign some papers. That business was transacted in the office of the banker mentioned in the story. Monsieur Georges wished to avoid seeing the man himself, but in this he did not succeed. The interview was short. The banker naturally asked no questions, made no allusions to persons and events, and didn't even mention the great legitimist principle which presented to him now no interest whatever. But for the moment all the world was talking of the Carlist enterprise. It had collapsed utterly, leaving behind, as usual, a large crop of recriminations, charges of incompetency and treachery, and a certain amount of scandalous gossip. The banker, his wife's salon had been very carlist indeed, declared that he had never believed in the success of the cause. "'Ye are well out of it,' he remarked with a chilly smile to Monsieur Georges. The latter merely observed that he had been very little in it as a matter of fact and that he was quite indifferent to the whole affair. "'You left a few of your feathers in it, nevertheless,' the banker concluded with a wooden face and with the curtness of a man who knows. Monsieur Georges ought to have taken the very next train out of the town, but he yielded to the temptation to discover what had happened to the house in the street of the consuls after he and Doña Rita had stolen out of it like two scared yet jubilant children. All he discovered was a strange fat woman, a sort of virago, who had apparently been put in as a caretaker by the man of affairs. She made some difficulties to admit that she had been in charge for the last four months ever since the person who was there before had eloped with some Spaniard who had been lying in the house ill with fever for more than six weeks. No, she never saw the person. Neither had she seen the Spaniard. She had only heard the talk of the street. Of course, she didn't know where these people had gone. She manifested some impatience to get rid of Monsieur Georges and even attempted to push him towards the door. It was, he says, a very funny experience. He noticed the feeble flame of the gas jet in the hall, still waiting for extinction and the general collapse of the world. Then he decided to have a bit of dinner at the Restaurant de la Guerre, where he felt pretty certain he would not meet any of his friends. He could not have asked Madame Leonore for hospitality because Madame Leonore had gone away already. His acquaintances were not the sort of people likely to happen casually into a restaurant of that kind, and moreover he took the precaution to seat himself at a small table so as to face the wall. Yet before long he felt a hand laid gently on his shoulder, and looking up saw one of his acquaintances, a member of the Royalist Club, a young man of a very cheerful disposition, but whose face looked down at him with a grave and anxious expression. Monsieur Georges was far from delighted. His surprise was extreme when, in the course of the first phrases exchanged with him, he learned that this acquaintance had come to the station with the hope of finding him there. "'You haven't been seen for some time,' he said. "'You are perhaps somewhere where the news from the world couldn't reach you? "'There have been many changes amongst our friends, and amongst people one used to hear of so much. "'There is Madame de Lestaola, for instance, who seems to have vanished from the world which was so much interested in her.' You have no idea where she may be now? 
Monsieur Georges remarked grumpily that he couldn't say. The other tried to appear at ease. Tongues were wagging about it in Paris. There was a sort of international financier, a fellow with an Italian name, a shadowy personality who had been looking for her all over Europe and talked in clubs. Astonishing how such fellows get into the best clubs. Oh, Azalati was his name. But perhaps what a fellow like that said did not matter. The funniest thing was that there was no man of any position in the world who had disappeared at the same time. A friend in Paris wrote to him that a certain well-known journalist had rushed south to investigate the mystery, but had returned no wiser than he went. Monsieur Georges remarked more unamiably than before that he really could not help all that. No, said the other with extreme gentleness, only of all the people more or less connected with the Carlist affair, you are the only one that had also disappeared before the final collapse. What? cried Monsieur Georges. Just so, said the other meaningly. You know that all my people like you very much, though they hold various opinions as to your discretion. Only the other day, Jane, you know, my married sister, and I were talking about you. She was extremely distressed. I assured her that you must be very far away, or very deeply buried somewhere, not to have given a sign of life under this provocation. Naturally, Monsieur Georges wanted to know what it was all about, and the other appeared greatly relieved. I was sure you couldn't have heard. I don't want to be indiscreet. I don't want to ask you where you were. It came to my ears that you had been seen at the bank today, and I made a special effort to lay hold of you before you vanished again. For after all, we have been always good friends, and all our lot here liked you very much. Listen, you know a certain Captain Blunt, don't you? Monsieur Georges owned to knowing Captain Blunt, but only very slightly. His friend then informed him that this Captain Blunt was apparently well acquainted with Madame de Lasteola, or at any rate pretended to be. He was an honourable man, a member of a good club, he was very Parisian in a way, and all this, he continued, made all the worse that of which he was under the painful necessity of warning Monsieur Georges. This Blunt, on three distinct occasions when the name of Madame de Lasteola came up in conversation in a mixed company of men, had expressed his regret that she should have become a prey of a young adventurer who was exploiting her shamelessly. He talked like a man certain of his facts, and as he mentioned names... In fact, the young man burst out excitedly, it is your name that he mentions and in order to fix the exact personality, he always takes care to add that you are that young fellow who was known as Monsieur Georges all over the South amongst the initiated Carlists. How Blunt had got enough information to base that atrocious calumny on, Monsieur Georges couldn't imagine, but there it was. He kept silent in his indignation till his friend murmured, I expect you will want him to know that you are here. Yes, said Monsieur Georges, and I hope you will consent to act for me altogether. First of all, pray let him know by wire that I am waiting for him. This will be enough to fetch him down here, I can assure you. You may ask him also to bring two friends with him. I don't intend this to be an affair for Parisian journalists to write paragraphs about. Yes, that sort of thing must be stopped at once, the other admitted. He assented to Monsieur Georges's request that the meeting should be arranged for at his elder brother's country place, where the family stayed very seldom. 
there was a most convenient walled garden there. And then Monsieur Georges caught his train, promising to be back on the fourth day and leaving all further arrangements to his friend. He prided himself on his impenetrability before Doña Rita, on the happiness without a shadow of those four days. However, Doña Rita must have had the intuition of there being something in the wind, because on the evening of the very same day on which he left her again on some pretense or other, she was already ensconced in the house in the street of the consuls with a trustworthy rose scouting all over the town to gain information. Of the proceedings in the walled garden there is no need to speak in detail. They were conventionally correct, but an earnestness of purpose which could be felt in the very air lifted the business above the common run of affairs of honour. One bit of by-play, unnoticed by the seconds, very busy for the moment with their arrangements, must be mentioned. Disregarding the severe rules of conduct in such cases, Monsieur Georges approached his adversary and addressed him directly. Captain Blunt, he said, the result of this meeting may go against me. In that case, you will recognise publicly that you were wrong, for you are wrong and you know it. May I trust your honour? In answer to that appeal, Captain Blunt, always correct, didn't open his lips but only made a little bow. For the rest, he was perfectly ruthless. If he was utterly incapable of being carried away by love, there was nothing equivocal about his jealousy. Such psychology is not very rare, and really from the point of view of the combat itself, one cannot very well blame him. What happened was this. Monsieur Georges fired on the word, and, whether luck or skill, managed to hit Captain Blunt in the upper part of the arm which was holding the pistol. That gentleman's arm dropped powerless by his side, but he did not drop his weapon. There was nothing equivocal about his determination. With the greatest deliberation, he reached with his left hand for his pistol and, taking careful aim, shot Monsieur Georges through the left side of his breast. One may imagine the consternation of the four seconds and the activity of the two surgeons in the confined, drowsy heat of that walled garden. It was within an easy drive of the town, and as Monsieur Georges was being conveyed there at a walking pace, a little brougham coming from the opposite direction pulled up at the side of the road. A thickly veiled woman's head looked out of the window, took in the state of affairs at a glance, and called out in a firm voice, Follow my carriage. The brougham, turning round, took the lead. Long before this convoy reached the town, another carriage containing four gentlemen, of whom one was leaning back languidly with his arm in a sling, whisked past and vanished ahead in a cloud of white Provençal dust. And this is the last appearance of Captain Blunt in Monsieur Georges's narrative. Of course, he was only told of it later. At the time, he was not in a condition to notice things. Its interest in his surroundings remained of a hazy and nightmarish kind for many days altogether. From time to time he had the impression that he was in a room strangely familiar to him, that he had unsatisfactory visions of Doña Rita, to whom he tried to speak as if nothing had happened, but that she always put her hand on his mouth to prevent him, and then spoke to him herself in a very strange voice, which sometimes resembled the voice of Rose. The face, too, sometimes resembled the face of Rose. 
There were also one or two men's faces, which he seemed to know well enough, though he didn't recall their names. He could have done so with a slight effort, but it would have been too much trouble. Then came a time when the hallucinations of Doña Rita and the faithful Rose left him altogether. Next came a period, perhaps a year or perhaps an hour, during which he seemed to dream all through his past life. He felt no apprehension. He didn't try to speculate as to the future. He felt that all possible conclusions were out of his power and therefore he was indifferent to everything. He was like that dream's disinterested spectator who doesn't know what is going to happen next. Suddenly, for the first time in his life, he had the soul-satisfying consciousness of floating off into deep slumber. When he woke up after an hour, or a day, or a month, there was dusk in the room, but he recognised it perfectly. It was his apartment in Doña Rita's house. Those were the familiar surroundings in which he had so often told himself that he must either die or go mad but now he felt perfectly clear-headed, and the full sensation of being alive came all over him, languidly delicious. The greatest beauty of it was that there was no need to move. This gave him a sort of moral satisfaction. Then the first thought independent of personal sensation came into his head. He wondered when Therese would come in and begin talking. He saw vaguely a human figure in the room, but that was a man. He was speaking in a deadened voice which had yet a preternatural distinctness. This is the second case I have had in this house, and I am sure that directly or indirectly it was connected with that woman. She will go on like this, leaving a track behind her, and then some day there will be really a corpse. This young fellow might have been it. In this case, doctor, said another voice, one can't blame the woman very much. I assure you, she made a very determined fight. What do you mean? That she didn't want to? Yes, a very good fight. I heard all about it. It is easy to blame her, but as she asked me despairingly, could she go through life, failed from head to foot, or go out of it altogether into a convent? No, she isn't guilty. She is simply what she is. And what's that? very much of a woman, perhaps a little more at the mercy of contradictory impulses than other women, but that's not her fault. I really think she has been very honest. The voices sank suddenly to a still lower murmur, and presently the shape of the man went out of the room. Monsieur Georges heard distinctly the door open and shut. Then he spoke for the first time, discovering with a particular pleasure that it was quite easy to speak. He was even under the impression that he had shouted, Who is here? From the shadow of the room, he recognised at once the characteristic outlines of the bulky shape, Mills advanced to the side of the bed. Doña Rita had telegraphed to him on the day of the duel, and the man of books, leaving his retreat, had come as fast as boats and trains could carry him south. For, as he said later to Monsieur Georges, he had become fully awake to his part of responsibility. And he added, It was not of you alone that I was thinking. But the very first question that Monsieur Georges put to him was, How long is it since I saw you last? Something like ten months, answered Mill's kindly voice. Ah, 
Is Therese outside the door? She stood there all night, you know. Yes, I heard of it. She's hundreds of miles away now. Well then, ask Rita to come in. I can't do that, my dear boy, said Mills with affectionate gentleness. He hesitated a moment. Dona Rita went away yesterday, he said softly. Went away? Why? asked Monsieur Georges. Because, I am thankful to say, your life is no longer in danger. And I have told you that she is gone because, strange as it may seem, I believe you can stand this news better now than later when you get stronger. It must be believed that Mills was right. Monsieur Georges fell asleep before he could feel any pang at that intelligence. A sort of confused surprise was in his mind, but nothing else, and then his eyes closed. The awakening was another matter, but that too Mills had foreseen. For days he attended the bedside, patiently letting the man in the bed talk to him of Dona Rita, but saying little himself, till one day he was asked pointedly whether she had ever talked to him openly. And then he said that she had on more than one occasion. She told me, amongst other things, Mill said, if this is any satisfaction to you to know, that till she met you she knew nothing of love, that you were to her, in more senses than one, a complete revelation. And then she went away, ran away from the revelation, said the man in the bed bitterly. What's the good of being angry, remonstrated Mills gently. You know that this world is not a world for lovers, not even for such lovers as you two, who have nothing to do with the world as it is. No, a world of lovers would be impossible. It would be a mere ruin of lives which seem to be meant for something else. What this something is, I don't know, and I am certain, he said with a playful compassion, that she and you will never find out. A few days later they were again talking of Dona Rita. Mills said, Before she left the house she gave me that arrow she used to wear in her hair to hand over to you as a keepsake and also to prevent you, she said, from dreaming of her. This message sounds rather cryptic. Oh, I understand perfectly, said Monsieur Georges. Don't give me the thing now. Leave it somewhere where I can find it some day when I am alone. But when you write to her, you may tell her that now, at last, surer than Mr. Blunt's bullet, the arrow has found its mark. There will be no more dreaming. Tell her. She will understand. I don't even know where she is, murmured Mills. No, but her man of affairs knows. Tell me, Mills, what will become of her? She will be wasted, said Mills sadly. She is a most unfortunate creature. Not even poverty could save her now. She cannot go back to her goats. Yet who can tell she may find something in life? She may. It won't be love. She has sacrificed that chance to the integrity of your life, heroically. Do you remember telling her once that you meant to live your life integrally? Oh, you lawless young pedant. Well, she is gone, but you may be sure that whatever she finds now in life, it will not be peace. You understand me? Not even in a convent. 
She was supremely lovable, said the wounded man, speaking of her as if she were lying dead already on his oppressed heart. And elusive, struck in Mills in a low voice. Some of them are like that. She will never change. Amid all the shames and shadows of that life, there will always lie the ray of her perfect honesty. I don't know about your honesty, but yours will be the easier lot. You will always have your other love, you pig-headed enthusiast of the sea. Then let me go to it, cried the enthusiast. Let me go to it. He went to it as soon as he had the strength enough to feel the crushing weight of his loss, or his gain, fully, and discovered that he could bear it without flinching. After this discovery, he was fit to face anything. He tells his correspondent that if he had been more romantic, he would never have looked at any other woman. But on the contrary, no face worthy of attention escaped him. He looked at them all, and each reminded him of Dona Rita, either by some profound resemblance or by the startling force of contrast. The faithful austerity of the sea protected him from the rumours that fly on the tongues of men. He never heard of her. Even the echoes of the sale of the great Allegra collection failed to reach him, and that event must have made noise enough in the world. But he never heard. He does not know. Then, years later, he was deprived even of the arrow. It was lost to him in a stormy catastrophe, and he confesses that next day he stood on a rocky, wind-assaulted shore, looking at the seas raging over the very spot of his loss, and thought that it was well. It was not a thing that one could leave behind one for strange hands, for the cold eyes of ignorance. Like the old king of Thule with the gold goblet of his mistress, he would have had to cast it into the sea before he died. He says he smiled at the romantic notion, but what else could he have done with it? End of second note End of the Arrow of Gold A Story Between Two Notes by Joseph Conrad <laughs>